Hello, and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast. Um, got a bit of a cough today, so hopefully I'll be able to manage that as we talk. Um, big event in the world last week, the Queen's funeral, of course. Uh, probably more or less relevant, depending on what part of the world you're in, but to uh, people here in Australia, for the most part, it's a pretty big deal. But wherever you might be in the world, the fact is, is a lot of people viewed the Queen's funeral. I watched a live stream myself for quite a while at my home, and I've read about it. It's the most watched event in history. Uh, One estimate was around 4.1 billion people watched the Queen's funeral. Um, The ability to view things like that is more widespread than it's ever been. Many of us have a device in our pocket we can watch from wherever we are, and there are people who watch on the same device. So an estimate of 4.1 billion, that's half the population of the planet, maybe even more than that. I saw one picture in an article I read. There was a young lady standing on the side of the street. She had her phone watching the funeral, and there's about 10 people surrounding her watching uh, on her phone. But no matter how you look at it, there's no doubt that it's the most watched event ever. As with anything, there were different feelings, comments about it. Uh, there's a quote from someone in an article I read said, I can think of better things to spend all this money on. Sure, it's great for tourism and the flower sellers, but I'm not sure the queen would be into this extravaganza. And then it gives this person's name. And then it said, it's, a pretty, it's pretty as a picture, but in the end, what does it really mean? And something I think people often don't understand is that funerals are not for the person who is gone, but for the people who are left behind. When we lose someone, we need a time of mourning and closure and a defined point in time where we say goodbye and recognize that this person is no longer here with us. And unfortunately, people are losing that understanding and funerals are becoming less of a thing. I know I'm doing far less funerals than I used to. And I've talked to people in funeral who work in funeral homes and it's people are just beginning to not have funerals, which sounds very strange. And I don't know what the effects of that will be for people, but I'm sure it won't be good. The Queen's funeral had been planned for decades and there was a lot of ceremony. There was a lot of pageantry. Uh, The part of the funeral that was actually the funeral itself, though, was unapologetically centered around Jesus. And it made me very happy to see that. The service was hymns, prayer, and scripture. And it was very similar to a funeral that I would do for someone who I know was a Christian, but of course, on a smaller budget. At the beginning of COVID, in a speech, the queen said, we will meet again. And the bishop who presided over the funeral, worked that into the sermon. I think it was the Archbishop of Canterbury. I don't want to mix my titles up and insult anyone, but I I think that's who it was. And he worked that into a sermon, we will meet again, but from an eternal perspective of those who know Jesus will meet again. And it was somewhat comical listening to a commentator afterwards try to talk about that, but at the same time, try to avoid talking about Jesus in scripture. And there was no question at all that it this was a Christian funeral and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the queen had a lot to do with the planning. She really did. And it was good to see that she and those speaking had endured 
and not let what was truly important fall by the wayside. Things that really mattered are the things they talked about. It was good to see them endure in that. And the discipline of endurance is what we're talking about today, specifically endurance and living your life for Jesus. And I want to read a larger portion of scripture today than I normally might. It's for context and it's about endurance. And it's also sometimes good just to read large portions of scripture. So endure with me um, as we read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 12. So we're going to start in Hebrews 11, 1 and read through 12, 12. This is what it says. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the men of old obtained a good report. By faith, we understand that the universe was framed by the word of God so that the things that are seen were not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain offered. Through this, he was approved as righteous with God testifying concerning his gifts. He still speaks through his faith, though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken to heaven so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him away. For before he was taken, he had this commendation that he pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned about things not yet seen, moved with his godly fear, prepared an ark to save his family, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out called to go out into a place he would later receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the promised land as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received the ability to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man who was as good as dead sprang so many, a multitude as the stars of the sky and innumerable as the sands by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Those who say such things declare plainly that they are looking for a homeland. And certainly, if they had been thinking of the country out of which they came, they might have had the opportunity to return. But they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Of him, God said, through Isaac shall your seed be named. He reasoned that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead from which he indeed received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped while leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, mentioned the exodus of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a time. 
He esteemed the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured by looking to him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest the one who destroys the firstborn touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, which the Egyptians attempted to do but were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, when she received the spies with peace, did not perish with those who did not believe. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in fighting and turned the armies of foreign enemies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and did not accept deliverance, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mocking and scourging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, while destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Their world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. These all have obtained a good report through faith, but they did not receive the promise, for God provided something better for us, so that with us they would be made perfect. Therefore, since we are encompassed with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and your hearts give up. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed while striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons. My son, do not despise the discipline from the Lord, nor grow weary when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. Endure discipline. God is dealing with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, of which everyone has partaken, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers, and they corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed disciplined us for a short time according to their own judgment, but he does so for our profit, that we may partake of his holiness. Now no discipline seems to be joyful at the time, but grievous. Yet afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame go out of joint, but rather be healed. We start in chapter 11, and chapter 11 is often referred to as the faith chapter or the heroes of the faith chapter. And it begins with a definition of faith. And it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And then the author goes on to cover a lot of history and major events of the Old Testament. And the scripture presents us in such a way that it's it's like an ancestry of faith. 
we read about those who have come before us as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, those who have endured in the promises of God, Noah, Abraham, Moses, all these, these great names that most of the world would know. And they are known because they trusted God's promises and endured in those promises even before they saw them fulfilled. And when the books of the Bible were written, there were no verse and chapter divisions. Those things were added for our benefit so we can easily find what we're looking for. And I'm certainly grateful for those. And as you read from chapter 11 to 12, there's actually no division in the thought or the writing there. It's just a division inserted to make it easier for you and I to search the Bible. So as the story of heroes of faith continues on from chapter 11, the first verse in chapter 12 gathers everything you read in verse 11 together with therefore. And it says, therefore, since we are encompassed with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, often a picture of this passage is given as all of these great heroes of faith sitting in the stands of a stadium, watching us live our lives for Jesus or run the race of faith that is set before us, which it, that's a nice picture. But all the names mentioned in chapter 11 of those who have come before us are not spectators. You know, them being a witness doesn't mean they're a spectator. The words don't carry that meaning. They're a large group. That's what the cloud is, who have lived and run the race of faith, trusting in the promises of God. And we are being emboldened and encouraged to run the race following their example, because they have been, they're witnesses of what it's like to live trusting God, trusting the promises of God. And the cloud of witnesses are all those who testify through their own experience of what it is to endure in faithful obedience and seeing God fulfill his promises. They bear uh, a testimony of the efficacy of God's promises. Therefore, we have seen these great heroes of faith bear witness to what it is to endure in the promises of God. And now we're being instructed, encouraged on how to practice the same discipline of enduring faith. The Bible says, therefore, since we are encompassed with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the first instruction we're given in practicing the discipline of endurance is to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Run the race by laying aside every weight. Cast off things that are going to hinder you. And I like to go uh, bushwalking, hiking, um, whatever you call it on, on your continent. And I like to go out and do overnight backpacking trips. And something I learned very quickly is not to carry any more weight than I have to. Extra weight will slow you down and it will make your journey more difficult. It's kind of common sense. And the metaphor our scripture uses is a race or a sporting event. Any competitor in any sporting event wears or carries only what they need. 
they don't bring any more than they have to. You won't see an Olympic sprinter carrying his laptop to the starting line. If you carry things you don't need, you won't be able to run as well. Uh, If you carry too much weight, you might not be able to endure. You'll give up. But we're not running a physical race. So what kind of weight are we talking about? We're talking about anything that is a burden or an impediment to you living out your beliefs, living out your faith in God. Now, as we read, the scripture does separate weight and sin. There are two different things here. And that tells me there are some things that are not sinful, but may still be an unnecessary burden. And each of us should take some time and think about and determine what that might be. What might that be in your life? What is not necessary? What might be just extra weight? And that can be sometimes be different for different people. We talk about that backpacking illustration some more. What you carry when you go backpacking changes over time and different people carry different things. Sometimes you look through your gear and think, well, I'm not really using this. So, you know, it's, it's going to get tossed or you find something you think, oh, that would be useful. And you add it to your gear. And if you've ever been on the internet, you know that people will argue about anything and, you know, every hobby subculture is like that. And backpacking is the same. Um, a lot of people disagree about what is good and useful and, and what's not good and useful. There are um, conventional backpackers, which are more traditional, traditional, and they carry, carry they tend to carry the most weight. Um, they also tend to be the most comfortable in camp at night, but their base weight is probably around 15 kilos, 30 pounds, something like that. And when I say base weight, I'm talking about your gear without your consumables, like food and water and fuel for your stove. And there are also lightweight backpackers who carry less weight. Again, their base weight is maybe 10 kilos or less. And then there are ultralight backpackers who carry a base weight of maybe five kilos or sometimes even less than that. It's crazy. And personally, I kind of fall in the middle of all that. But I don't want to carry more than I have to. But I also like to carry some things that other people might not. Um, I like things that are going to be durable. And I know they're going to be reliable, which if they're going to be durable, that probably means they're going to be heavier. But one of the things that keeps my gear a little heavier than many would see is necessary is my chair. I actually have a folding camp chair that I take backpacking with me. Now, it granted, it folds up very small. It weighs uh, 900 grams, right around two pounds. But it folds up small. I tuck it away. It fits on my pack. But a lot of people would consider that completely unnecessary, almost ridiculous to take that with them. But 30 years ago, I wouldn't have carried it. I would have considered it a dumb thing to carry. I thought, well, that's dumb. That's just extra weight. Why would you take that? But now I use it most of the time. After a big day, it helps me recover. I don't have to sit on a log or a rock, and I will perform better the next day because of it. But I, I only really talk about that to say you can see that what one person considers a hindrance, another might consider a help. So when we're talking about these non-sinful things, these innocent things that could be extra weight, those are things you kind of have to work through for yourself um, because they are different for different people. Um, What is it that that weighs you down and hinders your endurance in living your life for Jesus? Do you really need it? Because 
we all need to figure out what that is. And we're all going to carry some weight with us. We just have to decide what is necessary and what isn't, you know, what's helpful or what's a hindrance. And what are, what are some weights that we might need to cast off? I thought about this quite a bit. It's, it's almost difficult to come up with a list of things like that and then apply them to, or, or, or give them to you in a way that's, well, maybe look at this, think about that. But maybe something like maybe too much self-reliance might be a hindrance, might be an extra weight that you don't need to carry. You know, discipline is great. We've been hammering that for weeks, but too much self-reliance is not. We also need to rely on the Lord and the people around us. Maybe we put too much time and energy into watching others run the race instead of paying attention to our own race. Um, Maybe resentment. That's probably a weight we don't need to be carrying. And maybe, maybe even physical weight. I know I have an optimal body weight where I sleep better, I perform better, and I'm going to serve better because of that when I'm at my optimal body weight. But anyway, that's just a couple thoughts on, on weight that may need to be cast off. And our text also mentions sin. So weight and sin, they're, they're two different things. And you won't be able to run well while being okay with sin in your life. We need to actively cast off sin through repentance. And that word entangle, entangled gives a picture of something like trying to run a foot race in your bathrobe. Can you imagine that? Or maybe with your shoelaces tied together. And to run the race well is to cast off sin. And what sin is it that entangles you that you need to cast off? What's holding you back as you run the race of faith? And you probably already know what that is. And we all have those things we need to cast off continually. And laying those things aside, the weight and the sin is a skill that is acquired through practice. So practice it. Something we need to do, something we need to work at. Actively actively do it. And what we've talked about so far is getting rid of unnecessary weight and sin that entangles us. And I would call those things active endurance. Part of discipline is active endurance, disciplining ourselves to do something. And the next thing we read is let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. And this is another aspect of discipline that's that's different than active endurance, different kind of endurance. This is passive endurance. This is when you keep going even when it's uncomfortable to do so, even when you don't feel like it. Sometimes there are times when we just kind of have to bear with things. We have to you know, grind it out. And there's a certain kind of resistance that you just simply bear. You just work through it. You know, I love to go out and camp overnight, but in all sincerity, there is a lot of discomfort involved with that. You know, I never sleep great when I'm out in the bush. Some might even call uh, some of it suffering. And there are some things about it that are not fun and just require passive endurance. And on my last overnight trip, I camped on a, a rock escarpment about a thousand meters above sea level, which again, depending on where you're at, that may not be high. But for here, that's pretty high. And the temperature that night hovered just a tiny bit above zero, which is the coldest I've been in probably 15 years. I mean, it's, it's, it was very cold. 
and I know it gets colder in other places. I grew up in a very cold place, but um, for here and what I'm acclimated to, that was very cold. And I was a long way from anywhere. It wasn't like I was going to pack up my gear in the middle of the night and leave. I just had to lie in my sleeping bag and passively endure the dark and the cold. In times like that, someone might ask themselves, you know, why am I doing this again? Why am I here? You know, why, why do I keep doing this? And there are often times that are, that are more passive endurance than enjoyment. That's life. That's faith. That's life as a believer. The race of faith sometimes feels like that, just passive endurance and grinding it out. But that night that I endured the cold and the dark, the next morning, you know, I, I wake up and I light the stove and I make a coffee. And as the sun breaks over the horizon and the morning light filters through the trees and I'm sitting there, the sun on my face, in my chair, by the way. And I remember, oh yeah, this is why I do this. This part of it makes it all worthwhile. And if you've ever ran a race, competed in any sport, no matter how much you love it, there are times that require passive endurance because they're hard. And the only way through is just to just get through. Even for the strongest, most accomplished athlete, the race is difficult. There are times that they don't enjoy what they're doing. The best athletes are often the ones who have suffered and endured the most, like the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. It's painful. It takes discipline. It takes endurance. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To endure the race, set your eyes, your mind, and your heart on Jesus. That's how you endure. For the Christian, Jesus is the morning sunlight filtering through the trees. He's the prize for running the race. He's the leader of the heroes of faith. He's the author of what we believe, and he's the one who makes it complete. He is why we run. And that's why as we run, we're told to set our eyes on him. He is the prize. He's the celebration. He's the example of endurance. Hebrews 12.3 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and your hearts give up. Consider Jesus. Contemplate the endurance of Jesus as you run your own race. Jesus submitted himself to his Father's will and endured even to death. Not just death, but death on the cross. He traded his place in heaven for the shame of the cross so he could purchase our redemption with his own blood. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father and remains seated because his work is finished. And consider that as you endure in your own race. Jesus is our strength. He's the cure for doubt. He's the cure for hesitation. He helps us endure. Look to Jesus in faith. You know, and a saved believer understands trusting Jesus for salvation. We recognize that he died on the cross for our sin, and we can be forgiven when we trust him as our Savior. And the gift of salvation is a one-time for all-time gift. But we don't forget or move on from the cross. We don't forget or move on from the gospel as believers. It's what we look to and remember each and every day as a Christian.
Jesus is the celebration. He's the prize. He's the author of our faith, and he's the one who makes it complete. Set yourself on him and run the race. And I want you to know that I'm going to be praying for you as you do that. I want to encourage you to do that. Run the race of faith. Be faithful. Um, Yeah, go back and read that Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 again and contemplate on these things and be encouraged by them. And I hope you find this helpful. And if you think you know someone else who might find it helpful, please share it with them. And yeah, I will look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a good day.